wow, I've never been introduced here before. <laughs> and the way it went, I was thinking he was going to offer me a raise, but uh, <laughs> no such luck. This summer, um, oh, just one thing, though. I want to say something about the communion meditation. As I look around, I see that most of our home group is here today. And we were going to talk about Hebrews 8 on Wednesday. So instead of that, uh, y'all, we're going to have a quiz. Because you've already got the message. This summer, speaking of our home group, this summer, um, or last summer, we went through a short series by a marital counselor and conference speaker named Mark Gunger. And he's a bit of a comedian. Mark uh, started out by describing the fact that men are different than women, which everybody knows, but he explained it from the standpoint that women's brains are different than men's brains. Men's brains consist of little bitty boxes, sort of like you see at the post office, except not as many. And, uh, and men can only operate in one box at a time. If you ask them a question, you know, they have to put the box that they're in right now back very carefully and then carefully remove the box that deals with the subject that you're asking about and being careful not to let any of the boxes touch one another. And so, uh, but, but they have boxes for everything. They have a box for you, the wife. They have a box for you, the kids. They have a, or I should say we, we have a box for work. We have a box for recreation. A box for a mother-in-law. <laughs> box for friends. But our most favorite box is what is called the nothing box. Now, the guys know what I'm talking about. The women have only observed it from a distance. And that's a box that contains absolutely nothing. And it's our favorite box. When we go to that nothing box, we don't have to think about anything. We don't have to do anything. All we do is just sit there. And, uh, and we do that quite often. As he put it, that's why we can sit there watching the TV with... Uh, remote doing that, but it really aggravates the wives. It's frustrating to see a man doing nothing. Women's brains, however, are different than men's brains. Everything's connected, and so everything's going on at the same time. They can remember everything that has ever happened and call it up at, the, at a moment's notice. And it's all connected by an energy called emotion. And that's part of why they can remember all these things. That's why they can tell you how many days it's been since you gave them flowers. And, of course, when that happens to men, we feel foolish. And so it's frustrating for us. It drives us crazy that you can remember everything, 
while it drives you crazy, that we can be happy doing nothing. Needless to say, without some very good choices, this difference between men and women leads to conflict. And so in the final episode or the final session of his conferences, he has an episode called How to Stay Married Without Killing Anybody. Now, you laughed, some of you laughed, and some of you didn't. Um, Part of that reason is that you're living in the pain of that craziness right now. If you've if you're married or if you've ever been married or if you're going to be married, this is going to be part of what life with the opposite sex entails. Um, and, you know, this may not be your struggle today. You know, I hope for you that you have a great relationship with your spouse. But... Uh, There's no one here today who's not been hurt by someone at some time. It could have been a school friend who betrayed a confidence and all the kids at school made fun of you and you tried to brush it off because that's what kids do, but you're just a kid and it hurt and you didn't have any place to go with it. It could have been a sibling rivalry where the nitpicking turned into something more serious and uh, became cruelty. It may be something that happened with a parent or um, a step-parent or a foster parent. And it could be a mother or a father. Uh, It could be, um, of course, a spouse. It could be experienced with a coach or a coworker. But what you experience when their name comes up is a darkening mood. You can see that person. Um, the very mention of their name brings up a certain amount, a level of hostility and discomfort and resentment and perhaps even hate. So we can understand then why Peter might ask the question that opens our passage today. Turn, if you will, to uh, Matthew chapter 18. And where we are in Matthew, it's interesting. uh, Well, in Matthew chapter 18, there are a number of things that, that are part of the context at the beginning of Matthew 18, look what it says. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Um, You have to kind of understand that context to a little bit understand where some of the questions that Peter asked come from. So Jesus, Jesus talks about becoming like a child in order to be part of the kingdom of heaven. In other words, what he's intimating is the idea that children are trusting and they come very open, and that's what it takes to be part of the kingdom of heaven, to come to God and understand what he's offering you. Um, He talks about stumbling blocks. He talks about 
the difficulty that that creates and how a low a view of that God has. And then he talks about church discipline. The, the part of Matthew 18 that we're somewhat familiar with is the whole deal about your brother sinning and you go to him and if he turns, you've won your brother. If he doesn't, you take somebody else. And the whole process is really built to, or designed to be a process of reconciliation. But it ends, in this case, with the, the ultimate action that a church takes occasionally to actually put the person out of fellowship with the church so that they can experience the total impact of the lifestyle that they've chosen with the prayer that someday they'll walk through that door, come back, see the error of their ways, and uh, have that wonderful healing that's part of coming back into the fellowship of the body. So all of this is in here. And then Peter asks the question in verse 21. Peter comes and says to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As difficult as we realize that is, we understand the question. That forgiveness um, is really not an easy thing. I think if we're going to understand, and, and, and Peter just sets basically the topic that we're going to talk about. That's what the rest of this passage is about. It's about forgiveness and unforgiveness. Um, and if we're going to talk about forgiveness, I think it'd be a good idea for us to have, all of us to have the same idea in mind of what it means to forgive. If you get the dictionary out in uh, Webster's or another dictionary, here's what you'll hear. It means to give up resentment against. It means to cease to resolve to get even or exact revenge. It means to remit a debt to no longer require a payment. It means to pardon, even though the other person doesn't deserve it. It means to abandon your claim against another person. Uh, at this point, you may feel like walking out. I've been in these kind of sessions where something, I said, I know where this is going, and I'd really wish I hadn't had a ride here because <laughs> I could just get in my car and leave. Bitterness and resentment make the idea unpalatable. But there is no winning the battle. If you hold on to that, you cannot, cannot win. It's no wonder that C.S. Lewis called forgiveness the most un unpopular topic. As he said, it's a delightful idea until we have something to forgive. If forgiving means to just accept the hurt, give up getting even, seeing that that giving up, get seeing that guy pay for what he did to me, then I'm not all that keen about it. I struggle with that idea. Before we go on, let's take a time to pray and ask God for the grace to get through this together. Okay. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to, to read your word. We... we um, love your word. It tells us 
things as they are. Uh, Jesus didn't mince words with his disciples, and that included a lot of good news, a lot of great things like we just heard about this new covenant and the relationship we have with you. But Father, we know there was a price to pay, and uh, as a result, he became a model for what he's talking about in this passage with the disciples today. So I pray that you'll just help us to uh, listen with an open mind, to understand what you're saying, and especially to understand what it means. And Lord, help us to learn how to live it out. Uh, We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Peter asked, Just how many times shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? It's a little reminiscent of what goes on at our dinner table or has gone on at our dinner table on New Year's Day when we bring in the traditional black-eyed peas and the question comes, well, how many black-eyed peas do I have to eat so I can get dessert? Um, That's one of the problems of the Christian life is this whole notion that we really are trying to find out what's the minimum I can do to make life as smooth as possible. And um, Peter, I'm sure, thought that he was doing pretty well with his idea of seven because the rabbis in that day taught that three was plenty. And so Peter made it a much bigger number. He probably listened to the Sermon on the Mount. You know, you have heard it said, but I say to you, and Jesus upped the ante. But um, Jesus' response to the question, as usual, raises the bar to literally astronomical heights. So let's look on. Matthew chapter 18. Uh, verse 22. Peter asked the question, and Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Now he's not talking about 490. He's saying this is a whole different category. If I can, if I can say it this way, uh, put it in the terms that, that Todd's already used, this is talking about covenant living. Jesus called it heavenly living. Look in the next, um, next verse. For this reason, he says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a certain king who wished to settle accounts with his slave. So Jesus is introducing the idea that there's Peter, there's a whole different dimension here that you're not even entering into. It's not about numbers. It's about completeness. It's about fullness. It's about everything that's part of what God has done for you and what God is wanting to do in your life. And in a way, he's he's using the same terminology that Paul did when he says, set your mind on things above, not on the things on the earth. Peter, you're thinking earthly, and you need to be thinking heavenly. You're a citizen of heaven if you're my child. You are not, you're just sojourning here on the earth, but that's, you don't do as the Romans do just because you're in Rome. You're a citizen of the heavenly kingdom, and your lifestyle should be different. So this deal about how many times, that's a kind of a non-starter. 
earlier in Matthew, in the Lord's Prayer, there's a statement that says, Thy will be done. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This parable is about the kingdom of heaven, remember. So the king is God. And um, as we go on, it says, For this reason the kingdom may be compared to a certain king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he had begun to settle them, there was brought to him a slave who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, a talent could be like 80 pounds of gold. So this was an insurmountable debt. There was nothing that the slave could really do. And he says so, verse 25, but since he did not have means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. In other words, the Lord said, you can't do it. You know, you're, it, it's beyond payment. When the man heard this, he fell down, prostrated himself before him, and said, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave the debt. The reason that the king forgave the debt because he had compassion. He felt the distress of the slave. He understood what the slave was experiencing. And he forgave him. He had mercy on him. He released him. He set him free. And he forgave him. The debt was no longer to be an issue. We have to remember now, because we listen to this and we say, okay, I'm putting myself in this picture, that this is about the forgiver. This is about the king and how forgiving he is. The focus is on God at this time, not on the servant. But the point is that the debt is beyond paying and God forgave it. Forgiveness, according to David Augsburger, who wrote a very good little book called The Freedom of Forgiveness. It's been around for a long time. It's not very thick, but it's packed with challenging thoughts. Forgiveness, he said, is ultimately substitution. The one forgiving puts himself in the path of destruction. He takes on the punishment, the pain, and the devastation brought by the other. But the servant responds with something unexpected to us. Look at verse um, 28. After the king had forgiven. But the slave went out and found one of the fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii, which was about a hundred days wages. Um, a, denar a denarius is no comparison to a talent of gold. I mean, it's, it's beyond comparison. This is, this is nothing, is the general idea of this, of this uh, parable. He found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. He seized him and began to choke him, saying, 
pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell down and began to entreat him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. Does that sound familiar? It was the thing that the other slave was saying just four verses earlier, asking the king, Please have patience with me, and I will pay you. He was unwilling, however. but went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. The servant responds with unforgiveness toward the one indebted to him. He finds his fellow servants who owe him little and threatens them with their lives. Um, I'm thinking in terms of just principle here that um, in Galatians 5, God says to us, or Paul says to us, it was for freedom that Christ set you free. Only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for evil, but for good. That's the principle of this teaching, is that this slave was set free, but he used his freedom to take advantage of his brother's slave. We forget how completely God has forgiven us. And we blame, we assume motives, and we plan to get even. We don't remember the passage that Paul, I mean that Todd mentioned this morning from Hebrews 4 where it says to come boldly before the throne of grace that you may find mercy and grace in time of need. That's the access that God has given us it's not, this is not about, uh, you know, this passage is not about salvation. It's about kingdom living. It's about covenant living. It's about brothers and sisters in the Lord living together and how they treat each other. Well, uh, somebody sees this guy do this. When his fellow slaves, in verse 31 saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. And summoning him, his Lord said, You wicked slave, I forgave you the debt because you entreated me. Should you not have also had mercy on your fellow slave, even as I had mercy on you? So there's the principle. And we see it uh, a number of other places in Scripture. In fact, in that same Lord's Prayer, There's a line that says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. You know, if you read that and think about it, you say, are you kidding me? You know, I I want God's forgiveness to be way beyond that. I'm, I'm not exactly the model I want forgiveness to be based on when it comes to God's forgiveness of me. But we find it repeated in Scripture. It's told many times of of believers that they are tenderhearted, forgiving one another. In 1 Corinthians 13, one of the attributes of love is that we do not take into account a wrong suffered. That's unforgiveness. Well, the king finds out, as we saw in... 
he summons him and says, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you entreated me. And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. So shall my heavenly Father also do to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. The medicine has just gotten really strong, hasn't it? What a thing for um, Jesus to say. And I think the the point to make is that it's that important to God that we understand that if we're unforgiving, we're really not very well representing the kingdom of heaven. Um, we are never more godlike when we forgive than when we forgive. And we're never more fleshly than, we're, than when we're unforgiving. About this word torturers for a minute, um, the, the translators, as a general practice, will use the most general word uh, of all the different field of meaning. If you understand, uh, you know, a lot of words have a, a rather large field of meaning, like the word trunk. It can mean a lot of different things, depending on whether you're talking about a tree or a car or a body. And we call that a field of meaning. And so this word for torturers means, has a number of different meanings, and they usually just use the most generic, if you want to call it that. And so sometimes it's a good idea to look up words and see what that field of meaning is. In this case, the word torturers includes not only physical, but psychological torment or harassment. Remember when Jesus was taken by the Roman guard, they not only beat him physically, and crucified him physically, but they also harassed him. They spoke, uh, um, they mocked him, they insulted him, they belittled him. Save yourself. And he was betrayed, even by those who were closest to him, even to the point of denial. So to God, this, is, this thing is very important. And the question is, does God really do this? Jesus said this, but, you know, is there some kind of a back door here that we can sneak out of? And the answer is, he doesn't really have to. He doesn't really have to do something to make this happen. Because, um, and I'm going to quote Galatians 8, the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. We cannot be disobedient to God. We cannot walk away from God and claim that, well, by grace, nothing should happen. Sin has consequences. Grace has God given us what we don't deserve, but he's not freeing us from the consequences of bad choices. You can't kill somebody and claim grace and all of a sudden they're alive again. You just can't do that. And Galatians makes it very clear. That's the argument of the book, in a sense, is that you're to live um, a different life. Your life is, is different under grace than it is under law. But if you 
choose to disobey God, then you're mocking him. And Galatians 6 says you can't do that. God won't be mocked. And so you will reap what you sow, natural consequences. Um, I'd like to just say a few concluding thoughts relating to this. And um, maybe it'll be helpful. First of all, unresolved anger and resentment and bitterness are self-destructive. They're toxic. Those are those consequences. They're earthly. They're not heavenly. They are not of God, but of sin. They are not of righteousness. James says the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. They're entirely of flesh. They're not of the spirit. It's wonderful that scripture provides us a way to deal with anger, but what it provides is don't let the sun go down on it. Resolve the issue before it becomes something more, or it will literally destroy you. Um, C.S. Lewis, uh, one of my favorite, he is my favorite author, he used this example. He said, God made us, invented us as a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on petrol, and it would not run properly on anything else. Now, God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel of our spirits, we're, the fuel that our spirits were designed to burn, the food that our spirits were designed to eat. There is no other. That is why it's no good, look at, no good asking God to make us happy and peaceful apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. These unresolved issues that eat away at us are entirely unnecessary. They're entirely unnecessary. The question is, are you willing to be rid of the torment or the harassment? I suggest that you put this as a matter of prayer. And I've, I've been through this before more than once. So I speak from some experience about the relief and freedom that God gives. Um, but pray. Ask the Spirit of God. His, his, one of his ministries is conviction. That's one of those words. There's one, a bunch of words we probably like to just kind of say, like George Washington, or was it Thomas Jefferson? I don't like that part of the Bible. I'll just black it out. But he'll tell you where the source is. He'll tell you who it's aimed at. He'll tell you something about yourself you may not like to hear, but it's the path to, um, to relief. If necessary, write it down. There may be a number of things to deal with. And then confess it. And share with him not only the fact that uh, you have this, but the, the whole pain that led to it. You know, share with him the, the animosity and the feelings. that Those are part of it. Um, this is a grievous thing, and it hurt, and this is what I've done with it, but I see 
according to your word, that this is not what I should do with it. And finally, when you're done with that, leave it with him. It's gone on long enough. Let it go. So the passage is very simple in one way. It's about forgiveness. It's about being forgiving. And it says that that forgiveness is a heavenly lifestyle. It's part of living life with Christ and the Spirit of God. He's provided us everything necessary for life and godliness. And as C.S. Lewis said, we don't run very well on anything else. I'll leave you with um, a passage from the Old Testament. I jot it down, and I'll read it. Jeremiah 6, 16. Thus says the Lord, Stand by the ways and see, and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is, and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. Let's pray. Father, I I thank you for the attention that you have uh, given this morning. Um, I know that it's a a tough topic and perhaps a difficult way to start out the new year. I thank you for the encouragement that Todd gave us through the Lord's table. I thank you for the opportunity to, to realize that, um, that you speak the truth to us and you tell us that will make us free. Um, we have a hard time seeing that. We confess it. Um, not only is it difficult, but it bumps against our will. But Lord, we know that, uh, that what you have taught us about how to deal with things like this actually works. You're our only hope. Um, Help us to have the strength to trust you for this one. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.